0: first john chapter two we 're going to look at verses fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen today there 's so much here that we need to talk about let 's bring us back let 's wrap our minds back to last week just for a minute and remember what John who John is writing to here so he 's writing to the church, his beloved children, and he 's kind of pointing last week we talked about how he pointed out those three different groups and sort of the ages and stages of maturity. In Christ, those who are babies, immature in, in Christ, those young men, those young people, and then the older fathers, and he addresses them each two different times in this chapter. Last week I mentioned um, also for, for older believers, in your older age is not an opportunity to be lax and um, skimp on some of your responsibilities, but it's the same way for younger believers too. Every one of us, no matter our age, no matter our stage in our maturity level, we have the privilege but also the responsibility to lead younger believers. And I mentioned last week that the Bible just simply calls this discipleship. That's just all that it is. There's no special term for it. It's just walking with Christ and doing it with other believers, discipleship. We also saw that believers are only strong when the word of God abides in you. That's what he says. You can't rely on your own strength. You can't rely on your own abilities to overcome the evil one. You only can rely on the word of God. The last thing that I want to mention from last week that has kind of stuck with me has been this idea that the more assured that you are of God's presence and love in your life, the more motivated you will be to go out and do his will. And so I think that's important to keep in our minds as we move forward today. I mentioned last week, too, that what he talked to uh, children and young men and fathers was kind of setting them up and preparing them for what we're going to hear today, but then also what he's going to say in the rest of the chapter when he's, he's warning them about antichrists, about people who are going to try to deceive them and tell them wrong things about God. People are going to say, Jesus is not God. And so what he's saying last week today is preparing us to hear that next week in 18 through the the end of the chapter, verse 27. In our text today, which we're going to read in just a moment, verses 15 through 17, John tackles something. He talks about something that I think may be the most talked about thing in the world is love. Love. John talks about love here. Think about just about every book ever written, every song ever sang, every movie ever directed has something to do with love, right? I mean, it could be, I don't know if you like hard rock music, but you could be listening to a hard rock album and there's that that one ballad, that love ballad on that album. I and mean, you can be watching an action movie, but there's always a love interest, Right? There's always some storyline that has to do with love. It's everywhere, and that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, in the least bit. It's not. The Bible speaks of love. In fact, we've already talked about it in first, first John, the idea of love. God's love for us, our love for others. But I think that lots of times the kind of love that the world talks about that our culture is referring to is not the same kind of love that God talks about in Scripture. So my hope today, as we cover through some of these things, is not to just talk about love and everything that it is and that it isn't necessarily, but to really follow the text here and talk about some of the things that we love that we shouldn't, that God says we shouldn't love. So let's get in to the text and read it together. We'll have another word of prayer. 1 John two fifteen through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, or pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be those who do your will. We want to be those who abide forever. And we know that love is a part of this, but teach us today the kind of love that you're referring to, that we should wrap our hearts around, but also the kind of love that we should avoid. And we need to know the difference. Teach us that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of things right up front. Now that we've read the text, it's just I want to clear some things up, maybe point some things out. When John says, do not love the world. I don't think he's necessarily talking about creation. Okay. The created world, the trees and the butterflies and the flowers and all of these things, they were designed and created by God for what purpose? For his own glory and for the pleasure of mankind. He he designed those things for Adam and Eve to enjoy forever. They were given, Scripture says, they were given dominion over those things in the garden. Now, dominion does not mean just totally ransacking creation, depleting its resources, using it for their own selfish desires. But it's talking about caring for creation as good stewards, having dominion over it. Now, don't hear me wrong. I don't think that caring for creation always equates to being a tree-hugging hippie. Now, sometimes it does, okay, you you know that type of person, um, but I also don't think that what the Bible is getting at, what sh- the attitude we should have is that we should just burn down the rainforest just because we can, either. It's neither of those two things. We shouldn't scalp our planet of its resources irresponsibly, but we also shouldn't be so narrowly focused on loving and caring for the environment that we support the saving of animal or plant life over and above human life. There's a danger there that we have to avoid. But I think being good stewards of what God has given as far as the created earth goes, it makes complete sense when you understand the order of creation that we find in the book of Genesis. There's an order there. And so the priority we can, we can kind of pick up, pick up on God's priorities When we look at that clearly. Also, if you just flip open the book of Psalms to almost any chapter, you're gonna see and hear the positive effect that the created world has on the writer of that Psalm. The positive effect that creation has on people, right? We look out, we get some of the best sunsets around here. You look out at that sunset and you could just say, wow, that is awe-inspiring, right? We get the, this sense of awe and wonder. But you know what? It's not of creation itself because we've already said the design of creation was to point us back to the creator, okay? Romans 1 spells out what, what happens when we start to love the creation rather than the creator. He says, Paul says it's foolishness, and in fact, he actually says it's dishonoring to God. To worship the creation rather than the creator. So I think that we're supposed to manage the created world as God intends, not misuse it, but we're also not supposed to worship it as maybe some people do when it comes right down to it though. And you can know this just from reading the book of Genesis and the creation account. How did God make everything? What did he say when he was done with all these things? He said it was good. God created things good and right for his glory and for our pleasure. But what happens when sin infects the picture? Everything gets broken and infected, as I said. So our own depravity causes us to use what is good for what is not good oftentimes. This world is not the home of the true believer. Guys, this country is not the kingdom of the believer either. We are just pilgrims, strangers, sojourners in this land here only for a little while. But I think a lot of us, maybe even most of us, become lulled into thinking that there isn't anything beyond this physical world. We tackled this a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes. We get to think that this is all that there is. Therefore, if that's our premise, if this is all that there is, why wouldn't we live for ourselves? Why wouldn't we just do whatever we want? Because once we die, it's over. Why wouldn't we use this world to do those things? But John says, no, do not love the world or the things in the world. The second thing I want to be clear about here is I don't think John is necessarily talking about the people of the world when he says, do not love the world, okay? We know, think think about John 3.16 for just a moment. What does it say right off the bat? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, then you know that God didn't give his son to save the trees and the plants and the animals. Jesus did not come to die for mountain lions and gophers. He came, or insert any animal or created thing in there, he came to die for people, for human beings, okay? Now, we, we need to kind of flesh this out a little bit more. Does that then mean that everyone who is created will believe and get eternal life and spend eternity in heaven if they repent or not. Well, that's a teaching called universalism. And it's one that's crept into some people's thinking, some churches thinking. But I, we can't agree with that. We can't say that every person believes and is saved after what reading, after reading what Jesus says about all of this. If you remember back at the end of August, when we started, before we ever started in the book, I was giving kind of an introduction, and I I referred us back to John chapter 3. And we talked about, according to Jesus, eternal life, salvation, they hinge on something in particular. Jesus points to it as belief. Eternal life, salvation hinges on belief. And if you look back at John 3, and I'd encourage you to do that later today if you want, but in, in verses 15, 16, verse 18, verse 36, Jesus talks about how salvation is reserved to all of the, all those who believe. Anyone who believes has eternal life. So there is a narrowing of scope when it comes to saving grace, and Jesus points to that narrowing as belief. But it's not just Jesus. Paul teaches the same sort of thing in Romans 3. This includes that text that you all are familiar with, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty-one through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The righteousness of God is given to all who believe, Jesus says. Sinners then also have redemption in Christ who is received by faith. Christians are called to go into the world, all of the world, with the good news. And again, you're not going, you're not taking the gospel to the animals and the plants. You're taking the gospel to people, people of every tribe, of every tongue, of every nation, and all places in the world. So in Jesus' mind, the world is a specific group of people who believe and have eternal life. These are the ones who God loves so much that he sent his son for. So surely John is not telling us here in 1 John that we're not supposed to love the world in that regard. So what is he saying? Well, here's, here's what I think John is getting at here. I think what John is referring to is that we're not supposed to love the worldview perspective that is led by the evil one and is characterized by what then he says in verse 16, and you can look at that with me in 1 John 2. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes... The pride of life or pride of possessions, those are the things, those are the characteristics of the worldview perspective that John is saying, you can't love that. Don't do it. It's not going to go well. All of of those things are not from the Father. They're from the world. They're not found in him. They're found in the world. So if a person is controlled by those things, by these things that we're going to talk about in just a moment, if someone is controlled by them, then John makes it clear in the end of verse 15 that they've fallen in love with the very things that God hates. Now, I don't use the word hate lightly. I think I've told you this before, but in the Omas house, we hate is not a bad word, but it's one that we don't use very often because it's powerful. It has a lot of meaning. We reserve it for one, really one situation, and it's, it's this, when talking about hating our sin. Sin divides. Sin kills. Sin separates us from God. Sin displeases God in general. So we should hate it for that reason already, for that reason alone. We try to make it clear to our kids, though, that we should hate our own sin first before we hate the sins of others. You know, all, of, all sin is harmful and has to be addressed in its time. But if we focus on other people's sins and ignore our own, then what are we guilty of? We're guilty of ignoring the plank and trying to get the speck out. And Jesus says, don't do that. Hate is a strong word. But you know what? The Bible uses it more than just a few times. In fact, in the book of Psalms alone, it's used more than a dozen times just to talk about what God hates. Again, to be clear, God is not a God of hate. God is a God of love. John is going to tell us in chapters four, or in chapter four, verses eight and 16, that God is love. But if God is perfectly true and he's perfectly righteous and holy, then what must he do for sin? He's got to hate sin because he can't, he can't indulge in it. He can't allow it. He can't be a part of that. Sin is the opposite of everything that God is. So he must hate sin. And I think this is what John is really getting at here in verses 5 through 15 through 17. He's getting at the contrast between God and the world. theres There couldn't be more difference than God and the world. The goodness and righteousness of God versus the fleshly actions and desires of the pattern of this world. Now, make no mistake... It's not like the world and God are these two cosmic superpowers that have this epic epic battle at the end of the story and God just kind of barely drags himself out as the victor. That's not the case. Bible tells us that God has already won the victory over sin and death and the world. That's not how this looks. What John is getting at, I think, is for us, telling me and to tell you that you can't love them both. You can't love God and the world. If you love the world and the things of the world, then you love what God hates. But it's also true if, that if you really love God, Jesus himself says that the world is going to hate you. This is what he says in John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you're not of the world because I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Jesus and John both make it really clear here. There's no middle ground. You, you can't have it both ways. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot attempting to love the Father. How many of you, when you were little, I don't even know if they have, do they have merry-go-rounds on playgrounds now? Probably too dangerous, you know. Um, boy, they're a lot of fun though. Uh, but if, if you've, some of you older folks then, if you've ever ridden on a merry-go-round and it's going real fast, it's moving and the ground is not. And if you step off that merry-go-round at a high rate of speed, what happens? Whammo, right on the face, right? It's like that if you try to have one foot in the world and one foot with the Father. It doesn't work. They don't go well together. You will be disappointed severely in the end. If we love the world, John says here, it reveals that we don't really love the Father. Now, in helping us understand what, what are the things of the world? On the back of the prayer list, an announcement sheet this morning is, is a, a table that kind of compares these things. And we're not going to go through it, but for reference, you can grab one on the way out. Um, it's a helpful, thing that I found as I was studying that kind of compares and contrasts the things of the world and the things of the Father. Love of the world and its sinful patterns is the kind of love that God hates, and it's the love, therefore, that we should hate too. So besides this chart, how do we identify what the love of the world looks like? Well, John tells us in these verses, and he points out the oldest trick in the book. The oldest trick in the book of the enemy, of the evil one. And we saw it first in the garden. And we saw it again in the wilderness, in the desert, when Jesus was tempted. So back in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. You can turn there if you want. I'll start reading it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you see the correlation here between the things of the world that John is cautioning believers against and the thing that Satan tempted Eve with all the way back at the beginning? It was good for food, she thought, the desire of the flesh. It was delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes. She saw that it was desirable to make one wise, pointing to pride. One of the commentaries I was working with kind of compared these things. I'm going to borrow from that this morning. But the first thing is the desires of the flesh appeal to our appetites. So our flesh, brothers and sisters, I hope this is not a surprise to you. It shouldn't be. Our flesh is predisposed toward fulfilling our natural desires. And you can see this very early on in a child. You can certainly see this in lots of young people and adults as well. We're predisposed. We bend automatically without even trying towards sin. From the start, this is how it is. So our tendency is to satisfy our wants even when it might be wrong to do so. Secondly, the desire of the eyes appeals to our affections. So Jesus taught a little bit about eyes. And their connection with the heart in Matthew chapter 5. But our eyes are not inherently evil, are they? Your eye is not wrong just to view things. But so often, our eyes are used in order to allow wrong things into our hearts and into our minds, aren't they? This is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5 when he was talking about the sin of committing adultery in your heart by just looking at someone with lust. He has a pretty drastic remedy for it, too. He says, if that eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. This is better to enter eternity with one less eye than to not go at all. Pretty severe, pretty drastic measure, Jesus says, to go through. But it should show us the importance of what comes through our eyes and into our heart and minds. Thirdly, the pride of life or pride of possessions it appeals to our ambitions. This is really referring, I think, to the person who glorifies himself rather than the person who glorifies God. So pride, power, possessions, uh, position, for this person, that's what life is all about. That's it. A.W. Tozer helps us understand this better. Here's a quote. There's within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life, whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine, they look innocent enough in print, but they are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one little rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never intended by God. His gifts now take the place of God himself and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. In Luke chapter 4, we see somebody respond a little differently to this oldest trick of the enemy. Jesus did. You know the story. We don't need to read it all together, but he was fasting for a long, long time. And Satan came to him towards the end and he wanted to get Jesus' submission. He wanted to get him to recognize the enemy as over him, or at least to rely on his own strength and not the the spirit. And so he tempted Jesus with a few things, and these will seem familiar. He said, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus was hungry. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He said, tell this stone to become bread, the desire of the flesh. He showed him, he took him on top of the the building and he he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said, hey, look at this. This could all be yours. He was tempting Jesus with the desire of the eyes. He said, hey, throw yourself down. Don't worry, nothing's going to happen. Just cast yourself off of here. The angels won't even let your foot hit a stone. The angels will protect you, the pride of life. Now what's the difference between Adam and Eve's response in the garden and Jesus' response In Luke chapter 4. Well, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they responded with envy and really mistrust towards God, didn't they? Immediately, Eve started thinking, well, hang on a second. That does look pretty good. Maybe God is holding out on us. Maybe there's more that we should know. What was Jesus' response? Well, he responded... In the spirit, he responded with the word. Our parents, I'm talking about Adam and Eve here, responded the same way that we do today. How many times do we receive something and we say, well, is this really what God has for me? Maybe he's holding out on me. Maybe there's something better. Some of us even think that maybe a relationship with someone else besides our spouse is really going to make us happy. Maybe it'll work out better. Maybe a nicer car will show off our status as a family more. Maybe nicer clothes will help other people think better of us. We, we wrongly think that we can overcome the world by using the same methods that the world uses. Playing the same game that the world plays. It doesn't work. So he responded differently. For every lie that the enemy tempted him with, Jesus responded in the spirit and with scripture, with the word of God. He overcame the evil one by the word of God. Does that ring any bells from last week? He overcame the evil one by the word of God. It's the same way that John says that the young man he was writing to overcome the evil one. Because the word of God abides in them. So if you love or are devoted to a worldly system that opposes God, then the love of God cannot be in you. Paul defines worldly system as patterns of of this world. You might remember that from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. What was his solution for not being conformed to the patterns of this world? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind be transformed both by God himself in salvation, but also by the spirit of God through his word consistently, regularly. He also equates being of the world with setting your mind on the flesh from Romans chapter eight, verses five through eight. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, we need to believe God in verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2. When he says that the desires of the world, the world itself, it is passing away. Sometimes it seems slowly, and sometimes it seems rapidly passing away. But we also need to believe, God, that none of the things of this world that are passing away can actually satisfy us. They can't. The world claims to. All the advertising that we see claims to give us hope and joy and life and health, claims to satisfy us. It says that it has what it needs to make us happy. But only the love of the Father found in Jesus Christ can do that, can make you truly happy. I think that this world appears permanent to us because it's all we've ever known. For recorded history, this is all that we've ever known. It's been here longer than any of us. But at the end of verse 17, John says that the one who does the will of God, that's the one who's permanent. They're the one who abides forever forever. The one who loves the Father and not the world, that's the one whose eternity is secure. The one who continues doing the will of the Father, that's the one, that's the person who abides forever. If we or anything we do are going to have a lasting, effective purpose in this life, our hearts cannot be attached to the things of this world. They must be attached only to the will of God. Now, it's possible for a person to appear like they have it together and they really care about the things that God cares about, but it's, po- it's possible for someone to appear that way and it not actually be true of them. There's a person that is referenced a couple of times by Paul. You may not even remember hearing his name, but he, he writes about him in the book of Colossians and then also in the book of 2 Timothy. And the way that he talks about the, this person in those two places is heartbreaking the first in Colossians chapter 4, this guy named Demas, D-E-M-A-S. But he's listed first in Colossians chapter 4. And he's listed in a group by Paul, a list of people who are actually faithful in their dedication to the Lord. He's listed in that group. But when Paul is writing to Timothy a little bit later on in Second Timothy 4, he's talked about him in a much different way for a specific reason. There, he says that Demas, he says, has deserted me. He says he's deserted me. And here's why. Because he loved the present world. This guy loved the present world more than he loved the Father. And he deserted the faith. He loves the things of this life. New American Standard says. Guys, our hearts, because they're so bent towards sin already, it can be really easy to go the way that Demas went. It can be really easy to let the love for the world eclipse our love for the Father. Jesus mentioned this kind of person when he talked about the seeds and the different soils. It looks like it. They might pop up and appear to be growing really well, but the cares of this life choke it out. They burn it away. So the question is today, can we learn from Demas? Can we have our devotion and our passion for the Lord renewed? The worldly perspective is fleeting. It's blowing away. It's passing away. And because of that, it would be foolish to follow after it. It would be foolish to attach our hearts to the things of this world. Instead, our hearts should be attached to the love of the Father. The love of the Father that we find in a relationship with Jesus Christ because He's, as John says at the end of this section, He says that's the person, that's the thing that lasts forever. That's eternal. You won't regret even one earthly sacrifice when it's for the Lord. Let's pray. God, the things of this life, they are fleeting and I think we can, we can know that in our minds and yet our our own natural fleshly bent along with the world, along with the enemy, they're all trying to steer our hearts away from Jesus. They're trying to steer our hearts away from genuine love for you. And we know, Lord, that the only way we could love others or you is because you first loved us. And so we need your love, Lord. In fact, we're desperate for it. Lord, we think of Demas and we think of the tragedy of looking like we know you, but actually it not be true of us. And so, Lord, I pray if there are those listening this morning that aren't quite sure, that are struggling, that are wrestling with, is this true of me? Do I love the Father or do I love the things of the world more? Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. I pray that they would seek trusted counsel from those who love you. And I pray that they would understand your love for them. Lord, I pray that our lives would be marked not by the desire of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of possessions, the pride of life, Lord, but they would be marked by loving, obeying the will of God, being devoted and regularly, consistently doing the things that you have called us to do as your people. Bring that about in us, Lord, because we don't have the heart to do it ourselves. We need the Spirit. And so I pray that you would infuse your believers here in this place, in our community, in this church, with your word, that it would abide in them and that they can then in turn abide in you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.